podcast rolling. Do you know about Synth One? Have you heard of Synth One? I have not. Synth One is an open source plugin that I have had for a while. It's old, but basically people contribute presets to it and it's free. But uh, there are 25,000, over 25,000 presets for it that are just like a simple download and it's pretty easy to install. So I've been checking that out this weekend and some of the presets are really good. It it looks a little bit dated, like early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think their, I think their like final release of it was in 2014. So okay. it's, it's an old synth, like a virtual synth, but it's, it's really good. Um, it's easy to use. And like I said, there's uh 25,000 presets. 20, that's it. That's all only 25,000. Come on, man. No, no, that's, that sounds cool. So it's like a, like people just make their own and yeah, exactly. People just save off like cool stuff that they found. And then you can download these huge packs of presets and it's a very lightweight synth, like resource light. And, uh, it's cool. I've been playing nice. with it. Vital. If you've heard of that is a very similar idea where there's like a discord community of mm-hmm. people who are just sharing presets. And some of those guys are very, very like top notch at what they do. And they're making big saws, like leads and pads and plucks, keys, lots of like sound designed synths that you can do a lot with. And and uh, Vital has a free version as well. There's a lot of good free synths out there. Nice. Yeah, that sounds really cool. I've heard the Vital stuff, but I haven't checked it out yet. It's definitely worth uh, checking out, even just for the effects portion of it. They're really good, and the GUI is really cool. Uh, do you have a budget mic that you recommend people if they want to start like sampling or recording their own voice or an amp or something? The f- very first thing that pops in my head is the Audio-Technica AT2020, I believe. Okay. That's the the first mic that I got when I was just uh, doing my own like vocal recordings for like for my own music. Cause it was, I think it was only like maybe 149 bucks or something like that. And that's a condenser. Yeah. It's a condenser microphone and yeah, I still use it to this day. I've used it on acoustic guitars. I've used it on vocals. I might've even, I think I've even recorded percussion with it. I think I I recorded uh, this djembe that I have in the studio. Nice. And uh, yeah, it's a really cool microphone and pretty uh, pretty inexpensive yeah and uh yeah it works really works really well my go-to condenser for starting is a Rode nt1a and i think it's a similar idea the main thing with those cheaper condensers is they're typically very bright like they have like a like a strange like high treble uh frequency spectrum Mm -hmm. um but if you're paying attention to that you can easily remove that uh but Mm -hmm. Some some of the time you'll be like, oh, that that's more tinny than what my ear sounds like. If you record an acoustic guitar, you're like, that's not how my ears kind of show me. Uh, but then you just grab an EQ for that. Yeah. Also, a lot of times, yeah, because sometimes there might be certain like uh, filter settings on there. Like you have like a little yeah. switch that does like a a bit of like of a you know high pass filter or like, like a low or, cut or yeah. So, or, or even sometimes they probably have like maybe a high boost or something. I think the one I have just has maybe some kind of high pass or like low cut switch or something like that. But I think I generally keep it just like the standard settings, like no engaging anything like that. Yeah. Also the, uh, the SM 57, that's one I got recently that I've been using for like miking my cab. Okay. That's a pretty cool one. 
it's like i remember we were talking about it and you you said uh you've had a few rip on you yeah i just uh back when i was playing with a band we were pretty rough on mics and we would drop them and i think we ran one over with a car at one point well that will <laughs> Well, that's why you're like, <laughs> well, yeah, man, I'm not a fan anymore. They're always dying. I mean, and you, now you tell me that you've been running them over with your car. So that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I threw well, it out the window out of the Empire State <laughs> Building and it broke. What the, what the hell's going on with but that? But like uh, certain mics can survive such a thing. Uh, like this, this is an Audix i5, which is like mm-hmm. a competitor to the SM57. And I like it way more. Yeah. So, so it's, it's like instead it looks of cooler. Instead of having that like section at the top, the capsule that yeah. can just snap off if you're not paying attention, um, yeah. this one has like a a more solid body construction. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we we did some you know unrecommendable things with microphones. You just turn them into nunchucks and just start beating the hell out of things. Yeah, the main thing when you're looking for like a cheap condenser to get started with is you want something that's cardoid so it has rejection from the back because mm-hmm. most of the time you're recording in a not ideal environment so you want to have something that is rejecting things behind it and just capturing what's right in front of it mm-hmm. another another really good thing to get to if if you are working in a room that's a little bit like unruly as far as acoustics go is to get like a, i have an rlx mudguard that i put on a stand yeah, and that also helps a lot too because I used to record in a room that didn't have that much treatment. I maybe a a couple RLX panels on the wall, like you know, just very basic stuff, like one next to me or something. But the room was pretty. Like if you clap, you got some liveliness in the room. But that's a great thing to have, even if you're just like on the go and you're just recording. You know, even vocals in someone's living room. You know, having you know, like what you said, like you know, with the cardioid, and then with the mud guard. And is that something that just wraps around the microphone? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Here, here. Actually, I'll show you right now. I'll show you right now. We'll do it live. If you're not watching the YouTube channel version of the podcast, you should subscribe now. Can you see this? Oh, yeah. It's beautiful. But yeah, it's just like a little half circle thingy with the microphone in it and a pop filter. But yeah, it works. It works really well. And especially using it in this room now, since this room is a lot more like pretty, pretty quiet. Yeah. So having that is even an extra layer of really getting like a close and dry intimate sound but yeah if, if you're just like oh you're on the go and you're recording vocals in someone's living room or your house or a room that's not ideal for recording vocals <laughs> which is a lot of places which is exactly so i mean that's why i got it because i was like trying to do research on the you know best ways of capturing your voice and and all that so yeah because having all that stuff in there's no you can't really get it out without expensive effects and yeah, like you're not trying to RX all your stuff. You just want to get it good from the source. So it's a, mm-hmm. it's a it's a good way and pretty inexpensive. So I'd recommend that. Most stuff. And ideally, you want to have one condenser and one dynamic microphone to start. And then if, if you got extra monies, you can do some field recording. You can try for a stereo pair of the same mic. And it expands. The rabbit hole goes deeper. Yeah, having at least like, you know, a few variations of microphones like like i was looking at wanting to get an sm7b for a while Mm -hmm. i haven't quite found the need i was like maybe it'd be cool to get something like you know for for the talking stuff but i mean i've been using this this uh this road podcaster and it works really well but i mean it's usb so i I can't like i honestly think the road sounds better 
Uh, and the thing with the Shure SM7B is you have to get a cloud lifter because yeah. it's such a low gain microphone. And mm-hmm. so you got to you gotta boost it. Like, I think it's 20 decibels, like something pretty substantial. And so a lot of people, I mean, that, that microphone's so popular because of Rogan and other podcasters, but it's actually not really the best podcasting mic you can get. Mm-hmm. It's just, but, everyone but you can use the four vocals too, though. Oh yeah, yeah. I yeah. believe uh, Michael Jackson recorded the Thriller album with that. I think on a Pantera record they used a fifty-eight, and then at the very end of one of the songs, like there's like this like crazy feedback that happens because I guess after he he recorded the take, he like threw it in the trash can. Oh, God. The mic, <laughs> he like, yeah. He was just like, ah, just like, oh my gosh. Yeah, this says the SM7B found its way into the recording studio with Michael Jackson's Thriller album. And Quincy Jones loves the SM7. So it's a great dynamic microphone. You just have to keep that that boost in mind that you're going to have to do the cloud lifter or some other yeah, accessory. That's a, yeah, that's that's the thing that always sucks when you uh, need another piece of gear to do a thing. It's exactly. Like- and they came out, sure came out with the MV7, which is a USB version of mm-hmm. it looks very similar. It's cheaper. And I think that's a pretty good mic too. I know that... Manchester Music did a shootout between the MV7 and the SM7B, and he was pretty impressed. Jeff Manchester, Manchester Music. Exactly. I need a voice like that. Him him, and Venus Theory. I need a, one of those kind of voices. <laughs> Bring it in. You got to fake it till you make it, man. Pull it in. Push it back. <laughs> so I did a deep dive on Mr. Jerry Goldsmith. Oh. You should like him because he has a ponytail. He has a ponytail and he writes great music. Dude, The <laughs> Omen is one of my favorite soundtracks. I mean, as you can, you know, everyone knows I like the the Dark horror. Side. The horror. But yeah, it's funny. The Omen is one of my favorite soundtracks, but every time it would like come on randomly on, on my phone, like listening to music, like, I, yeah. you know, the different, you know, your phone will just randomly play stuff that you have uh, on, on there. Like, it'll be like, oh, like <laughs> I just turn it off because it scares the hell out of me. <laughs> yeah, you're like, that's not casual car music. Yeah, that and that and the soundtrack for the witch, man. Like whenever those come, I love them. But like when I'm driving, I'm like, I don't want to hear any of that. Right. I'm not trying to I die need, on this freeway. Yeah, I need to put on like How to Train Your Dragon or like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate <laughs> Factory or something that's like happy go lucky or something because I'm not I ain't trying to go down like that. Not about that. So <laughs> Jerry Goldsmith was born in 1929 had an insane run mm-hmm. um, he was he was practicing piano learning piano went to USC for a little bit and then at 21 years old this is in 1950 he starts working as a clerk typist at CBS so they got him this job as a clerk typist for the first six months because uh, in order to like do anything in the music department you had to be an employee And so he began scoring these radio shows once a week Mm -hmm. for CBS. And if you wanted to work on any of their shows, you had to be an employee. You didn't have to be in the music department, but you had to be hired by CBS. So you got to be in there somewhere, yeah. Exactly. So he weasels his way into the music department for live TV scoring like Twilight Zone after... Mm -hmm. He said between six to nine months is when he started landing like real gigs with CBS and he quit being a clerk typist because he wasn't really good at typing. (laughs) So he's at CBS for 10 years from 1950 to 1960. Then he goes to Universal Pictures. In 1968, he got attention. Like this is when he kind of got a national 
presence for his score of Planet of the Apes with Charleston Heston. And it was written entirely in the avant-garde style. And it says, when scoring Planet of the Apes, Goldsmith used innovative techniques as looping drums into an echoplex, using the orchestra to imitate grunting sounds of apes, having horns blown without mouthpieces on, and instructing the woodwind players to finger their keys without using air. He also used stainless steel mixing bowls, among other objects, to create unique percussive sounds. He was 39 before he actually got like a a gig that was giving him attention to the public. Mm -hmm. And he got nominated for an Academy Award for that. He's been nominated 18 times and he's only won one for The Omen. So the 1970s come along. It's basically time to put everything through an echoplex. He puts trumpet, he puts drums, he puts pipe organ, just anything goes through the echoplex first. <laughs> In 1974, he's hired to replace the score to Chinatown, and he wrote and recorded it in 10 days. That was not wow. the first time that he had to replace a composer and like score a project really, really fast. Um, wow. He rewrote the score to Air Force One in four weeks. And I, th- I believe there was one other one as well, but he replaced Randy Newman on that because Randy Newman, my boy, Randy Newman got fired. Ah, uh, yeah. Real see, bummer. see, folks, doesn't matter who you are. You could be even Randy Newman <laughs> and not get the gig. Yeah. Or get kicked off the gig. Get kicked off the gig. Don't take it personal. Just keep working. Jerry Goldsmith was just out there slaying everybody. It's just like, he's like the, the man that you call, like, it's not working out. We got to get Goldsmith on the line. Right. Right. <laughs> He's like the wolf in uh, Pulp Fiction. Like, uh, c- call the cleaner. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Goldsmith composed a dark choral score to the horror film The Omen in 1976, which was the first film score to feature the use of choir in an avant-garde style. Um, so that was a big deal movie. And yeah, then, man. That's a good one. It's so memorable. Like, you'll never forget it. Yeah, and it's just so haunting too. Like when you think of like scores that don't really have like, it's not like you know like Christopher Young and Hellraiser where it's like very like involved. You know, it's very dark and brooding, but it's more kind of you know full on symphonic. Yeah, you know, it's like like with that scores, you know, the melodies and everything is boom, 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 boom. It's very just like simplistic, but so damn evil. You Intense. Know? Like, yeah. So, in 1977, Star Wars was born, and that was a big deal, and that kind of mm-hmm. changed everyone's career. Up to that point, we weren't really doing space movies, but then mm-hmm. after that, everybody had to have space movies. So, the next, <laughs> big, the next big movie he did was Alien in 1979. Yeah. And uh, there's a story around this time as well where we weren't doing superhero movies up to this point really either. Mm-hmm. And Jerry Goldsmith got pitched on doing Superman. And he was like, like man and t- men in tights kind of thing, like the comic book stuff. And they were like, mm-hmm. yeah. And he was like, give that one to Johnny. And, <laughs> and like, they, and so John Williams got Superman and you know, the rest of that story. I think I've heard of him. Uh, so he composed a score to the science fiction film alien in 79 his score featured an orchestra augmented by an indian conch horn a didgeridoo a steel drum and serpent which is a 16th century instrument 
while creating further alien sounds by delaying string pizzicati through an echoplex. I told you the echoplex comes back. So <laughs> he's got didgeridoo, steel drum, Indian conch horn. Many of the instruments were tweaked and abused in such atypical ways they were virtually unidentifiable. So that movie is awesome too. Wasn't didn't that use a lot of I haven't heard that that soundtrack and and seen that movie in so long. Well, didn't they use a lot of like aleatoric kind of yeah, like Penderecki inspired stuff as well, like just like a lot of like clusters and atonal stuff. Yeah. He's very big on mixed meter and atonality. That's actually the reason I did this deep dive is I started watching First Blood, the first mm-hmm. Rambo movie last night, which I've never seen. And the score is is my boy Jerry. And he is doing all this mixed meter just constantly. And it's mostly piano, actually. The score is very spare, like sparse, mm-hmm. but it's like... And it's like, like very... Like action low, like action low piano. Yeah, it's just, it's like lots of of solo piano and then some strings, but it keeps you guessing on like what's going to happen next because like most of the movie is just running around and blowing things up. Yeah, it's a very, a very like 80s type thing. A lot of people like, like now it's like just all like low strings, like like low spiccatos. Back then, yeah, it would be like, you know, maybe like low spiccatos, but like, or piano, like, yeah. And he said, if you're scoring a scene for a man on a horse galloping away, you don't score the gallop, but you score the fear of the rider. And I think you can really hear that in his music where he's not scoring what's happening, like the physical objects. He's scoring emotions, Mm -hmm. which is, yeah, most of it, (laughs) which is the job. Yeah. 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 You don't want to Mickey Mouse it. (laughs) Then it turns into some kind of like comedy thing. Yeah. So he concluded the 70s composing the score for Star Trek, the motion picture in 1979. So like I said, space was a big deal Mm -hmm. in the late 70s after Star Wars. And he ended up doing five Star Trek movies. In the 80s, he did First Blood, Gremlins, Hoosiers, Runaway, which is his first all-electronic score. I haven't seen that one. In the 90s, he did Total Recall, Basic Instinct, Rudy, Angels in the Outfield, Goodwill Hunting, Air Force One, L.A. Confidential, The Mummy, and Mulan. Wow. Just classic, 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 classic. Yeah. Just bangers left and right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's the, the last paragraph says his style has been noted for its unique instrumentation, utilizing a vast array of ethnic instruments, recorded sounds, synthetic textures, and the traditional orchestra, often all together. When asked about his inclination for embracing new techniques and constantly shifting his musical palette through the years, Goldsmith said, It seems like it's me, and that's that. Certain composers are doing the same thing over and over again, which I feel is sort of uninteresting. I don't find that you grow very much in that way. I like to keep changing, trying to do new things. Basically, I'm saying the same thing with a little different twist on it. Once you get caught up in the creative process, something inside takes over and your subconscious just does it for you. So I told you he was offered the score to Superman and passed on it. Mm -hmm. And he considered Total Recall one of his best scores. Oh, wow. Get your ass to Mars. Yep, the Schwarzenegger <laughs> one. I, w- I wonder what Superman would have sounded like if he did it. I'm sure it probably would have been just as classic, just in a different way. Like, I'm, like yeah. I'm sure, like even like like Alan Silvestri or like any of you know composers of those types, you know, of those calibers, like probably all could have wrote like some iconic score to it. But it's it's an interesting thing to think about. Totally agree. 
I would love to hear it. A Goldsmith Superman. Yeah. He did. He did do Supergirl a few years later. I haven't heard that score, and I don't think hmm. many people watch that movie. But if you nah. want to hear his take on Super something, you can hear yeah. Supergirl. Um, a couple of other interesting tidbits. His last score was in 2003, and he died in 2004. Mm-hmm. So he, the dude worked up, like worked right up to the end, which yeah. I think is inspiring. Yeah. And then the other thing is John Williams did around 120 films in his career. I guess he's still composing, mm-hmm. <laughs> but Goldsmith did around 260. Oh, wow. So over double. And there's pros and cons to that because he did a lot of really bad movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of the things that he talks about in his interviews occasionally is he was very insecure about where the next gig was going to come from. And so he, oh. he said yes too much. Well, yeah, he always thought that like, like if, like if he said no, or like he always had to keep kind of trying to prove himself, even though he's already like been a legend at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And so he, he kind of never turned that survival setting off of like off in his brain where he was just always saying yes. And so yeah. if you look at his IMDb or his Wikipedia, the movie list that he's done is just huge i mean it's enormous like over 260 Mm -hmm. pictures that he did but so many of them were flops bombs at the box office were bad scripts but like Like, he composed the best score he could for a bad movie mm -hmm. Um, and so that's an interesting balance like if you look i think john williams has been much more choosy and picky with his movies he's also had the benefit of working with spielberg for so much yeah and Goldsmith didn't really have a partner director in the same way. He's just out there, just wherever. just Yeah. Gun for hire. Yeah. So that is my deep dive on Mr. Goldsmith, 1929 to 2004. Yeah. It's crazy. It's a crazy run. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah, dude, that guy is legend. Like when he first started his career, they were just starting TV. Like TV was just booting up. And so nobody really knew what they were doing. Like they were just hiring people off the street for various roles and like, oh, you want an assistant direct? Okay, come on in here. And everything was very intense and loose. Mm -hmm. So he said that he would stay up for 48 hours when they were doing these once a week live shows. He would just not sleep. He would bring the music that he had written and, you know, he'd been working on it all night and then he would come to the studio to CBS and they would perform it and it was live. So he was like, we hoped that we could do a good job, but if we didn't, there's always next week. <laughs> oh, wow. Was he, was he orchestrating all of his stuff too? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Composing so, it and orchestrating. All right. You know, just like coming in all like frantic, probably like, all right, here's your sheet. All right, here you go. All right. All right. Hope it sounds good. Hope I didn't, you know, typo that. Right. And that must be, that must be been pretty intense. The wild west of TV. I ain't kidding, man. But yeah, I thought the I thought the part about just like overworking was interesting. And I, I think he did love to compose, so that was part of it too. But I think if he had taken a step back and taken a couple of years off or anything like that, he would have probably found better quality. Like his hit rate, I mean, he has huge movies on his roster, right? But mm-hmm. if you look at the percentage of his movies that are still in the the limelight, Williams has much higher success rate. Yeah. 
it's like you you wonder if maybe he wasn't working on some of those other projects maybe he could have been doing something else or right and then i thought like that i thought it was interesting that he was getting called to replace scores too which would be a bummer if you're the first composer and they're like yeah we got we got goldsmith replacing your stuff but i mean at least you would be like well all right you know that'd be like if (laughs) You know, for some reason, I'm like working on some project and they're like, uh, we're taking you out. We got Johnny. <laughs> like, well, that's understandable. Yeah, it's like, you know? that hurts my feelings, but I understand. Yeah, yeah it's just like, God. <laughs> Not again. Yeah. Johnny! Quit taking all the gigs. <laughs> Have you watched the movie Runaway? Runaway. No, no, no. What's that about? I haven't watched it, but it's it's Goldsmith's first fully electronic score that came out came out in 82 i think interesting i wonder what kind of is it like uh like sort of like a sci-fi or yeah it's a sci-fi movie i need to uh it looks real cheesy the cover looks real cheesy but i added it to my watch list oh yeah you you said you got a list of like a bunch of old movies that you're watching yes sir and so so rambo's was your most recent on that list yeah, I watched half of it last night. I got to finish it. Too much blood? You're like, oh, I got to. <laughs> no, One of the things I love about those old movies is when there's just like an onslaught of bullets getting blasted at somebody, they never get hit. Right. Like Rambo will never get hit. But then like he'll come out and he'll just be like, and like 50 guys <laughs> just start dropping. Like he shot maybe you know, like a, a burst of a small burst of what they shot at him. Right. And they're all dead. Hero can't lose, man. Yeah. Yeah. You think about it. It's like, well, this, yeah, it'd be over real quick if they're like, Rambo's dead. All right. Well, <laughs> end of the movie. Yeah. I haven't even finished my popcorn yet. <laughs> I haven't actually seen The Omen. Really? Yeah. Oh, I, I'm not, I'm definitely behind on the horror genre. Yeah. Well, that's a cool one because it's not, I mean, there, there are a, a, a few, you know, moments of, of gore, but, the thing about it is it's not like a like the exorcist or something like that it's like a different type of horror yeah because you know like with you know the subject matter of this kid being you know the son of the devil sort of thing and uh yeah it's yeah it's one of those movies you kind of have to watch even the exorcist i feel is one of those two like if you don't really watch a lot of horror and you watch the exorcist it might mess with you for a little bit have you seen it no you've never seen the exorcist oof that's one of those movies. If you haven't seen it, like watch it. Like, I don't know if you have like a, like any kind of like surround sound or anything like that. But if, when you do watch it, watch it in the dark, like just, just fully sit, immersed, just immerse yourself, man. I remember the, the, the first time I got a 5.1 system, like a while back, it was like a long time ago when they like first started making them. So, you know, so you can like buy them and put them in your house. I was like hooking up the speakers and I, I had the DVD that had the, it was like the remastered version of it in 5.1. And I was just like, just like freaked out watching. <laughs> oh my gosh. Cause you just hear all, cause they added like new stuff and new sounds. You hear like little things passing around you. And yeah. How'd you sleep that night? Like a scared baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no, yeah, yeah. Definitely watch those. But yeah. The Omen's really, really cool though, man. It's definitely, I would definitely say add that to the list. Are you team Star Wars or team Star Trek? I would say Star Wars. I've never really watched a lot of Star Trek. Yeah, same here. It's like the whole, it's like nerd nerd wars of like 
are you a, are you into the Jedi or are you into the the Trekkie? I don't know. I, I I did watch the new Star Wars or the new Star Trek movies. It was like the newer ones yeah, that came Chris out. Pine, yeah, yeah. I mean those those weren't bad. I just don't I don't really know that much. It's it's kind of like the whole like Marvel versus DC thing. It's like there's a whole universe that you're supposed to know about, and you're if you don't keep up, you're out of the club. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of it has to do with what your parents introduced you to as well. So like my parents were Star Wars fans, not Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or are they like anti Star Trek, like Star Trek? Ugh. Yeah, a little bit. Or just yeah. like sh- Star Trek shrug, you know, like. Yeah, it's just like, yeah, it's just like engage Deep Space Nine. <laughs> yeah. You know? I don't know. I just feel like like Star Wars is a little bit more. uh I don't know, like just the story wise, just like what the hell were they thinking back then? Like <laughs> just this creating this whole, you know, even like like the stuff like with like the Dark Crystal, you know, like all these older movies that just create these characters and these universes that are so like, how do you like what are what are they into that's making them form these creations of these characters and like weird species and how they like all interact with each other on this, you know, galaxy far, far away. And just, you know, like who like it's just that's the thing that trips me out. Like what were they doing to think of these kinds of ideas? Because it's really cool. I mean, even like, I mean, probably with a lot of the like Marvel stuff or even if you're into like Mortal Kombat, you know, like a lot of these, you know, universes, like, like what you know of Mortal Kombat, it's like, yeah, they're people that fight and they kill each other, but there is really like these, you know, just this whole mythology with, with these characters and they all have backstories and how they intertwine and all that stuff. Like I always find fiction being written yeah i always find that stuff really interesting like how people just create these characters and in these universes and backstories that you know even make sense like as the story evolves you know that that's the thing i always love that's why i'm like such a big breaking bad fan just like how you know even like with better call Saul, they can create all these crazy like prequel backstories out of like maybe a couple lines right of something that was in breaking bad but never had any other significance later on in the show because it's just yeah. like that's the that's like the attention to detail stuff you know like like what like they mentioned two names of people who had nothing to do with breaking bad like when he says like who said he was it lalo was it nacho and then if you watch better call Saul, like there's characters developed off of that one little scene when they you know when they have him out in the desert just trying, uh, trying to spoil well, things uh spoiler alert sorry <laughs> no hey, no no I'm uh, sure if I they're they're on the last season, okay. So at this point, if I spoiled anything for you, that's your fault. Right, that's on you. Yeah, that's uh, on you, man. Yeah, it's like your reverse engineering story, and yeah, it, ta- totally. it takes a lot of imagination to do just new elements like that. Yeah, and to do it good too, like because I mean, you can probably, you know, just like anything, you can start off a story that's not very good, or then if you have something that's really good, you know, the, of course, there's a lot of expectation to to stay in that sort of like you know, high level of, of good story writing. But I mean, it's like, if you're already doing stuff, that's awesome. I'm sure you can find a way to make any kind of backstory or prequel sort of thing. Just as good. Yeah. One thing that I think John Williams has going for him is his singability of his scores. Mm -hmm. I don't think I can sing a single Goldsmith score. And so if you think from that aspect, like, how easily playable is your melody? Can someone sing it? Or if they hear it on the radio or hear it on a playlist mm-hmm. or something, can they tell you what it is? And so many of John Williams' scores 
you can sing. Like if someone throws out Indiana Jones to you, you could do your best to sing and you, you can instantly put yourself in that time and place and you're watching that Mm -hmm. movie again. And even though I love movies like alien, I'm not going to sing the alien score theme to you. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's, that's kind of an interesting thought as well. Like how memorable is your score? And I think Goldsmith went for feelings. Like he wanted you to feel a certain way, but he, he wasn't writing specifically easy, easy to sing scores. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wonder if that was, if, if that was a decision that had something to do with like, Williams himself or if that's conversations that him and Spielberg had like we want these you know to be memorable or if this was you know because I mean of course like I you know because back then when they were saying you know like you know with Star Wars like the planets like this is kind of something that we want to sort of be like a color palette of, of you know the soundtrack of this movie yeah so then you know you have these you know you know maybe that had something to do like I wonder if if that was just decisions kind of made from conversations with the director, or if his music was just kind of written to be naturally thematic or right. if that just kind of became his style or like, you know, that sort of thing. Cause he was like a jazz pianist. So, yeah, you know, well, a lot of they, his melodies back then were probably singable. Or, yeah. At some point. Yeah. When they first put John Williams on the star Wars gig, they just wanted him to reorchestrate the planets. Mm-hmm. Like they, they didn't want him to write any new music for it. They just wanted him to kind of, you know, tweak the homework a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And then he was like, I can do something original. that sounds like this. Mm -hmm. And then we have star Wars. So that's all on Jerry Goldsmith, a uh, killer career by any stretch of the imagination. Um, But some, some sad kind of spots as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, at least, at least he always kept busy. I mean, it's it's crazy it really goes to show that no matter what level of success you always have that little voice in the back of your head that that little you know the 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 feared voice in in the back of your head that can influence decisions that you make because yeah so some people they get one gig and they're just <laughs> like where's my yacht man it's time to yeah. go on vacation these child I actors who retire yeah, you know, or they blow all their money and like there's, you know, some people who are, you know, genuine artists like like I feel like with him he was a genuine artist for sure because you know, even just hearing him talk about how wanting to always do something new like yeah. Like any any real musician and that's what's always going to like keep people trying to progress moving forward is that want to hear something new or or kind of push it. Curiosity. Like doing, yeah, just, yeah, exactly. The, the curious aspects of, of being a musician and just always wanting to, like, what if I did this? What if I did this? And, you know, especially when you're a composer, it's like a lot of it is like, oh, here's a theme. Now, what if I took the theme and did this? Like, there's always that, what if this, you know, kind of, it's always like evolving and kind of snowballing. And, you know, that's, that's cool that he always was trying to experiment or do something new or, you know, record weird bowl percussion and running stuff through an echoplex and just like always trying to push creativity because yeah you know even these days it's sad that there's a lot of people a lot of composers who probably want to like push out and and do more odd stuff i mean zimmer is probably one of one of the most known who who's always Mm -hmm. trying to kind of push it and and do something new and kind of re-envision what people are expecting like you know like when he was talking about the star wars thing like is that the music that would be happening in this galaxy. Yeah. Like, the, a like traditional orchestra. Yeah. You know, like 
is that really what it would sound like? So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's cool to see when people just have that. Cause I think that's what makes it more fun. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have like, all right, you know, or even doing like concept albums. Like, I think that's for me personally, like writing concept albums are so much more fun than just like sitting and like working on musical ideas. Cause I think you have this kind of like general idea. It could be sort of foggy, but when it's like, okay, like let's say, you, you know, I have this song and you like explain these visuals. It's in this place and it looks like this. And there's this, you know, you know, let's say you're like explaining like the idea of like, you know, some really eerie forest and there's like these pits and the thing and they're just bubbling. And then there's this like these crazy creatures flying over like that already starts to make it like, oh, okay. Like, <laughs> right. I kind of, you know, it, it makes the, the trying to like imagine that musically more fun than just like, just write some creepy stuff. You're just like, well, okay. You know, where, where can I go with that? But when you're kind of like creating that visual, I think it, it for me, it makes it more fun. Yeah. Gotta have some, uh, some reason why. Yeah. Some, some context. Exactly. I was trying to think if I have any recommendations for this week, I guess I would say check out synth one and then also check out my newest artist library quadril two which oh. just came out last week. Uh, very exciting. Uh, it's atmospheric synth pads. It's got gritty. It's got lo-fi. It's got magnetic. It's got nature elements, field recordings, all kinds of um, fun stuff. And it's got a randomized button so you can get real crazy. Yeah. I really like the uh, the acoustic elements in there. Those are, yeah. those are some of my favorite. Recorded a good bit of uh, pianos and like roads and different uh, acoustic guitars and some Chinese acoustic stringed instruments as well. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any recommendations, stuff you've been watching or listening to? Um, I've been watching Live on the Spectrum, but that's not very... <laughs> <laughs> Do you like it? It's an interesting show. Yeah. It's, it's, it's uh, interesting to see, you know, people with, you know, with like autism or, or Asperger's and, yeah. and how they're trying to you know, find love and, and trying to connect with, with people and, and just, you know, seeing the, how their thought process is and, you know, how they just, you know, try to find love just like everyone else. It's just, it's really, inter- it's a, it's a really nice heartfelt show. You know, it's I've heard a, it's very well edited and you really want the characters to win. Yeah. It's just, it's just a nice show. You know, it doesn't, I don't know how else to explain it. It doesn't nice have to show. be more than that. It's just a nice show. Yeah. Damn it. I like it, man. Well, we've got a bunch of cool guests lined up over the next few weeks and months. So you should definitely subscribe to our YouTube channel or subscribe to whatever podcast app to listen to more of us because I know you can't get enough. We'll do more deep dives on composers, more recommendations. The fun never stops here. Yeah. You don't want to hear the sound of this voice. Yeah. Craig's working on his Venus Theory voice. Hello, everybody. I'm working on my Venus theory voice. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Coffee time. No. But yeah, subscribe. Leave us a review. It helps us out. Help us help you. Yeah. And let us know if you guys want to hear certain people on the podcast. You know, let us know. We'll reach out and chat with them. Absolutely. All right, Craig. Catch you next week, man. Catch you next week. Peace. Peace.